In our text this morning, uh, we're going to read about uh, a man named Matthew. Uh, A lot of the other gospel writers call him Levi, uh, but uh, his name was also Matthew. And we're going to look at his story and see how his story is really a a, a remarkable encounter with Jesus uh, that really led to an immediate and radically transformed life. And so his story really fits in with the the overall theme that we're looking at over the past couple weeks uh, in the Gospels, the theme of Jesus encountering individuals and radically uh, transforming their lives. And this is one of those powerful stories. But this story is also shocking for other reasons. And uh, the other reasons uh, that it's shocking have a lot to do Um, with the social world in which all of this happened, which we don't always quite understand until we really dig into what was actually going on. When I think about uh, this culture, I I think about, in some ways, the the Indian culture that I talk about in some of the world religions classes classes that I teach. And uh, when we talk about Indian culture, at least what it's been for the past several centuries, Uh, you look and see how it's intimately related with the Hindu religion. And because of that, there's this thing called the caste system. Uh, It's a a system of society that has been uh, influenced by uh, the religion of Hinduism. And uh, if you've ever looked into the caste system before, you'll know it is uh, kind of a tightly outlined uh, system of society in which there are classes that people are born in, uh, they live, they play, they socialize, they marry within that caste, and they die within that caste. And the only way to really move up and down uh, this caste system is to die and be reincarnated into uh, another higher caste, uh, depending on the karma that you have put out in your life. Now, the influence of this caste system in a lot of ways has diminished in the Indian culture, And a lot of that is because of Western influence and Western ideas that have flooded into the the Indian subcontinent. Um, But we Westerners, we Americans, still kind of look on that with a little bit of uh, discomfort. We look at it and we think, how could they live in such kind of archaic tears in their society? And so we kind of look on that with a little bit of scorn. And yet, Western culture, while it is not overtly defined by a caste system, we certainly in our culture deal with issues that are related to race, to status, and of course, socioeconomics as well. And because of that, we can kind of understand what is going on in this story, and that is actually what makes this story such a powerful one. Sure, it is a powerful story of one man interacting with Jesus Christ and having his life transformed, but it's a powerful story for other reasons as well, reasons that have to do with with class and socioeconomics. And so it becomes a powerful story once we really understand what is going on. So three different gospel writers tell this story, but we're going to read Matthew's account Uh, from Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading from verses 9 to 13. This is God's Word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As Jesus reclined at table 
In the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's Word. Father, speak to us this morning as we look at Matthew's story. Uh, Speak to us as we see what the gospel meant for him in time and space, uh, but also help us to see what the gospel means to us and what you intend to speak to us through Matthew's powerful story and through your powerful scriptures. So visit us with your presence here this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, There's really three quick things I'd like to note about our passage this morning. Uh, The first is the nature of Matthew's faith. You really see that in verses uh, 9 to 10. The second is the nature of the Pharisees' outrage. And you see that uh, in verse 11. And then finally, we get a glimpse into the nature of Jesus' mission in verses 12 to 13. And if we're able to really note these three things, I think it leaves us with one really powerful question. And that question is this. How do you respond to the mission of Jesus Christ? Do you respond to the mission, mission of Jesus Christ with faith? Or do you respond to the mission of Jesus Christ with some version of smug scorn? I think that's what our passage presents to us this morning. So the first is really the nature of Matthew's faith, which we see in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, our passage, the main, the main character of our story this morning is Matthew, and it tells us that he was a tax collector. Now, in first century culture, the closest thing to a villain culturally was the office of the tax collector. And one commentator says that, that people in Jesus' culture would have reacted to a tax collector the way you and I would react to someone like a pimp or someone like an informant. That's how hated tax collectors were in Jesus' culture. Think about it this way for a minute. Think about all of, uh, just to bring it culturally uh, to our time, think about all the anger and the scorn. If you paid attention to the news a couple years ago, think about all the anger and the scorn that the military and the American culture felt towards someone like Bo Bergdahl, who was uh, considered to be a traitor and a deserter because he left his troop when they were fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. And he's been lifted up in our culture as really the ultimate traitor and has been treated really accordingly. Think about all the anger and scorn the financial world feels towards a man like Bernie Madoff, uh, who was a market investor, who cheated countless people. I think the the number was he uh, frauded uh, close to 5,000 people to the tune of about $65 billion. 
Okay, that's a, that's a lot of people and that's a lot of money who he cheated out. Think recently of all the, the anger and scorn that Hollywood has shown towards characters like Harvey Weinstein and his kind of pattern of sexual abuse towards women over so many years. And think about even our own city. Think about the kind of continual scorn people feel towards uh, real estate owners and landlords who continually uh, cheat the poor of our city into deeper levels of poverty each day. Think about all the, the anger and the hatred towards those sorts of people, even in our city. And then what I want you to do is put all those things together. Wrap all of that anger and scorn together, and that is how the first century world thought about tax collectors. They were not well thought of in Jesus' day. They were the cheaters and the scoundrels of Jesus' day who worked for a foreign power that the Jews in particular really had a problem with. You see, they worked for the Romans, but even the Romans didn't like them. They just used the tax collectors in order to do their dirty work, the things that they didn't want to get their hands dirty doing. And so what they would do is they would tax the Jewish people. So the Jewish people didn't like them at all. They would tax the Jewish people. They would cheat them out of their own money uh, through heavy and unjust taxations. And so the tax collectors, they were the riffraff. They were the societal outcasts. They were the rejected ones. They were the people that were hated by really every corner of ancient society. And yet today we read that as Jesus is walking along first century, the first century, in the first century world, he saw a man named Matthew sitting, sitting at a tax booth. Now we initially don't think much about it when it says that, but if we had lived in that day, we would have been utterly shocked at what we were witnessing. We would have hated this man. And we would have considered him worthless of Jesus' attention, worthless of really anyone's attention at all. And yet Jesus goes directly to Matthew and he says to him, follow me. What does Matthew do? And he rose and followed him. You see, Matthew responds to Jesus in a remarkable picture of faith and trust. And so don't miss what's going on here. Jesus is calling the villain of the story, transforming his life right there on the spot, and then this villain becomes to us and to everyone there the paragon of what true faith is really all about. You see, Jesus' choice here, of course, is surprising. Jesus is at the point of his ministry where he, like any good rabbi, would travel around the culture and start gathering followers. And this is placed in the gospel in what's called the call narratives, where Jesus is walking around gathering his followers whom he will teach for three years, surrounding himself with men who will become his followers and will carry on his message after him. And when you think about that, you come to, the, you come to this place where you've chosen Matthew of all people that you would have chosen to follow you, you have chosen Matthew. Why call someone who is so reprehensible to everyone else? 
After all, Jesus, you're going to have to spend three years of your life with this man. And so what you see right away is that Jesus' calling of this man is shocking and it's surprising. But Matthew's response is just as surprising because he experiences an immediate life transformation upon encountering Jesus. He leaves everything, his job, his wealth. He may have even left his family at that moment. He leaves everything in an instant just to follow Jesus. Nothing would get in the way of him following Jesus. In some ways, if you are with us last week, in some ways, uh, Matthew becomes a foil for Nicodemus. If you remember the the Nicodemus story from last week, Nicodemus, at the end of his encounter with Jesus, he didn't walk away from anything. Instead, he, he stayed entrenched in his position and in his social class. He had too much to lose by following Jesus because at the end of the day, he wasn't really looking for personal transformation. But not Matthew, not Matthew. Instantly, he leaves everything in order to follow Jesus. He saw more worth in what Jesus was offering to him in that moment than anything he was leaving behind. And friends, that really becomes the kicker of this story. It presents us with with a question that each and every one of us ought to consider. Do you see that the value of following Jesus far outweighs the value of anything else you would leave behind to do so? You see, that is the power of Matthew's faith. But what's so interesting about the story is that Matthew doesn't just follow Jesus. What we learn right away is that Matthew decides to throw a party. He decides to to generate a celebration, and he decides to invite all his friends in on this celebration because he needs to let them in on this treasure that he has discovered in Jesus. It says, And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, what's surprising is that Matthew has friends in and of himself right? That he would have friends at all is remarkable. But what it probably tells us about his friends is that they were just as hated and disregarded as Matthew was in that culture. The table was full of tax collectors and sinners. The passage tells us this is probably the riffraff. This is uh, the lowest of lows in Jesus's culture. These are the people that no one else wants to associate with. They are the ignored. They are the whispered about. They are the hated. They are the scorned of Jesus' day. And yet, where is Jesus at the party? He's right in the middle of it. He's right in the middle of all of these people who have gathered around them. And he is celebrating right alongside each and every one of them. And so that quickly leads us to the second thing we see about our passage, and that is the nature of the Pharisees' outrage. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, what we don't immediately realize is that the dinner table 
in Jesus's culture was considered to be sacred. It was a means of acceptance. It was a means of of social climbing in in Jesus's world. And so to dine with someone meant that you accepted them, that you appreciated them, that to dine with someone would be an expression of mutual acceptance, of mutual friendship, and mutual caring. But the table also was a means of social climbing in Jesus's culture as well. To, to share a meal with someone was to, in some ways, define the rules of societal clout. And what I mean by that is this. If you wanted to advance in Jesus's culture socially, what you would try to do was you would try to get an invitation to the dining room table of someone that was higher in social class than you were. And so if you were able to dine with them, that may improve your social setting. And of course, if you received an invitation to someone that you consider just a little bit lower than you on the social realm, you would uh, not accept that invitation for fear that it would somehow hurt your social clout, your social standing. And add on top of that all the kind of religious components of ritual purity and uh, the way religion was connected to that culture. And all that comes to this, that the boundary of one's circle of association was really attached to who they dined with to who they sat at the table with. It was almost a little bit like high school and middle school cafeteria, right? And the desire to improve socially that, is, that exists there. And so that's what's so interesting about our passage because what Jesus is doing here, by celebrating with this crowd, Jesus is in effect throwing a grenade into the social and religious conventions of Jesus' day. He crosses every sort of boundary of social class and convention, and in so doing, he demonstrates this, that the gospel of grace is for everyone. It is for everyone. You know, the Pharisees looking on are saying things like this, don't you know, Jesus, that if you dine with these types of people, it will be social suicide for you? You'll never really establish yourself as a good rabbi. You'll never really establish yourself in the eyes of others. If you dine with these people, you will be counted amongst the riffraff. You yourself will become an outcast, a scorned one, a ridiculed one, just like they are. And so Jesus, sensing the thoughts of the Pharisees, sensing their outrage, takes this opportunity to explain the nature of what his mission really is. He says this, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, what Jesus is doing, and I think what, what, Mark the, or what Matthew, the gospel writer, is doing is he's setting up a very, very simple contrast here. On the one hand, you have Matthew and his friends. These are the sinners. These are the rejected. These are the outcast. These are the unwell. These are the sick. 
And on the other hand, you have the Pharisees. These are the, the, the quote-unquote righteous of Jesus' day. These are the, the ones that believe that they have no need of a physician. They don't need any healing. They aren't sick. They have no need for any sort of doctor. And here at this party, these two worlds come colliding together. And yet in the midst of that collision, the ones that walk away, the ones that salvation comes to, are the ones who are the marginalized, the ones who are sick. You see, friends, sometimes I think when it comes to the gospel, we tend to overcomplicate uh, what the gospels tell us and what the message of the gospel really tells us. Because I think the simple point of this story is this. If Matthew's setting up a contrast, the simple point of the story is this. Matthew wants you to ask, who are you in the story? Which one are you? Are you the the Pharisee in the story? Are you the one who sees more value in your status, in what you've accomplished, than in truly and radically following Jesus? Do you find that your heart at times or most of the time is captured by scorn, by anger, by thoughts of, by condescending thoughts or, or by judgmentalism? Have you found a lot of confidence in your own goodness and your own righteousness? Do you believe down deep that Jesus would be lucky to have a follower like you? A person like you that has a good set of morals and a strong sense of duty. When it comes to your own personal spirituality, are you pretty confident that you would get a good, clean bill of health? Well, if so, then you are really the blind one in this story. You are the one who does not acutely feel your deep need for a doctor. And we've all been there before. We've all been at the place where our success, our reputation, our social status, maybe even our bank account or our religiosity blinds us to just how sick we really are. And if that's us, we're like this. We're like the person who is racked to the bone with some terminal disease withering away each day, but dressed in the finest of clothes, believing, telling ourselves that nothing is really and truly wrong with us. Or, or are you like Matthew and his friends in this story? Have you come to the place where you've recognized that your sin has made you sick? Have you recognized that, that, that there's no way to heal yourself? You've exhausted all the options you have to bring healing to yourself. Have you looked past all the pretending and recognized the true poverty of your soul? If so, if so, your heart just like Matthew's, is fertile ground for acceptance and salvation. If so, then the celebration of forgiveness and grace is open to you and know that at the center of that celebration stands Jesus Christ himself, our Savior. As one author said, you see, we don't need incremental moral improvement Instead, each and every one of us needs deep 
transformation. You see, ultimately, Jesus' fraternizing with the outcast did exactly what the Pharisees said it would do. It led to Christ's exile. Because at the very end of his life, he was carried outside of the city and he was crucified as a common criminal. He was spit upon with scorn and anger and judgment by those that surrounded him. And what we know is that the judgment of God in that moment fell on him as he hung on the cross, being numbered as a transgressor, being numbered as a sinner. The gospel tells us that he did all of this so that those who are sick can be healed, that those who recognize their sin can experience salvation. So friends, as we reflect on Matthew, as we reflect on this story in the gospel, stop living in blindness and instead accept who the scriptures say you truly are. Because when we do, we are welcomed into the celebration of sinners who have been accepted, loved, and chosen by God. Join in that celebration. Let's pray.